0: This message by Toby Kurth, entitled "Let Jesus Shape You," was recorded at Wellspring Church on March seventeenth, twenty nineteen. The text for this message is James chapter one, verses nineteen through twenty-seven.
1: Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of James, chapter or, uh, one, verse nineteen through twenty-seven. Hear now, the word of the Lord. Know this, my beloved brothers. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction... And to keep oneself unstained from the world, so far the reading of God's word you may be seated
0: so as I had shared, um, I went to Africa with a few of the guys, and because of that these past few weeks sort of taken a break from speaking but it also more than even a, a break from preaching, much more it's an opportunity to not only rekindle, but remind ourselves of the fact that we are in community together, not just with Wellspring, but with a number of churches that love Jesus, want to make him known, especially in the Bay Area. And I think most of you know how significant that is. The uniqueness of these churches is that not only do they have similar theology and vision, but our mission is so entwined together and... Um, we had Jeff Locke with Grace Alameda a few weeks ago, Joey Chen from Sunset Church, and this week we have Toby Kurth from Christ Church. He is no stranger to us. He is a, a friend, a brother in Christ, a fellow partner in the gospel, and really bringing the light of the gospel to uh, the outer Sunset area in San Francisco. And I think all of us can truly recognize how critical that is for the Bay Area, so So thankful for Toby and his, not just his partnership, but really his friendship. So he's going to give God the word to us. Thank you,
2: Sam. (laughs) Well, it's always good to be here. Uh, This fall, Christchurch, we're going to be celebrating our 10th anniversary. Uh, But in all reality, that 10 years really began here about almost, I was trying to think of this, I'm thinking of the dates in my head, Um, but it was almost exactly 10 years ago that Sam invited me to start sharing his pulpit and begin preparing for the launch of our church. I think we did our first interest meeting the very last week of February. And so we are coming into, um, into the old high school you guys used to be in. I'm just thinking through all these memories here. It's incredible to think about that. So even though we'll formally celebrate the beginning of Christ Church in the fall, um, it really is us being here, um, with you guys. It was the beginning of the church. Um, you know, and of course, many of you guys have abandoned us and gone back to Wellspring, but that's for another sermon, another time. I'm not looking at you, Sue Young. No, and all—all all good sport. Uh, actually, I do want to say something about Sue Young. Um, and then I'll need to pray to get ready for the sermon. No, I told this to Sue Young when I bumped into him. Uh, it really is a sacrificial service of people from Wellspring that were willing to go. Um, and throw for, for uh, Su Young and Menjay to be willing to step out and away from family and away from a community they loved to sacrificially serve Christchurch and to help get it launched. And then obviously God eventually led them back here. But a sacrificial service of, of like that, Soo Young. That, that enabled us to get going in sacrificial service for many other people that you guys sent and support along the way that is why we still exist uh, 10 years later. So we are so grateful for you guys, not just in a generic sense, but in a very personal and real sense. And Sam's one of my closest friends in ministry and, and times that we have together aren't just kind of uh, surficial they're deep and they're essential to absolutely everything we do as a church. And so we are very connected to you guys. We are very grateful for you guys. And so it's a joy to get to have the opportunity to come in and, uh, and share from the book of James with you guys here today. So let me pray and we'll, we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you gave us the book of James. We thank you that it was written to an original audience by the brother of Jesus but you have preserved it for us through these many years because you intend to speak to us today just as powerfully as you spoke to the original hearers almost 2,000 years ago. So I pray, Lord, that you would open our minds, that you would open our hearts, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged. I pray that no matter how we walked in these doors, strong in faith, struggling or just exploring, that you would meet us exactly where we're at. You know our hearts better than we could possibly know them. You know where we're at. You know what we need to hear. Challenge us, encourage us, correct us. Push us forward, do whatever needs to happen, Lord, Draw us close to Jesus, and help me to faithfully proclaim your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When well, you think about vital connection to Jesus and how important it is in our lives? It reminds me of a story that I heard. It's probably one of the first stories I remember my dad telling me. Uh, my dad grew up in Northern California, up in the little town of Chico, and my grandmother worked at the local water company, and so my dad was in a preschool up there when he was about three and a half years old. I think this is my, my dad's earliest childhood memory. The preschool shared a chain link fence with a farm. It was out on the edge of town. And for some inexplicable reason, the farmer comes over one day and and, and gathers the kids around and says, do you want to see me kill a chicken? And the kids having no clue really what that meant, they're like, sure. So you can imagine the scene, all these little three and four year old kids. Imagine your kids like gathered against the fence and watching this farmer first chase down this chicken and then grab the chicken and then bring the chicken over to a stump and wheel the hatchet and just, phoom! and the absolute like horror and scream is still burned into my dad's brain, right? But if you know anything about chickens, what happens after you cut a chicken's head off? Does it nicely and neatly kind of die and just fall by the wayside? No. Well, you, most of us aren't farming folk. We've probably heard the stories. So the absolute horror of the kids when, when, the, when the head was lopped off was 10 x when the headless chicken then began running around the yard, sprouting blood and everything else. And the kids are screaming and yelling. And I have no idea where the preschool teachers were at this point in time. Um, but my dad's scarred for life and me by extension, because he tells that story to me when I'm little. So you imagine the scene. Why do I tell you that story? There's a reason. Uh, Because I think so often we can claim we have a vital connection to Christ and we realize he's the head of the church. But I think so often we mistake a whole lot of flurry of activity for actually being vitally connected to Jesus. And and activity is not what it's about. Going through the motions of church is not what it's about. You know, even spouting off what you believe is not what it's about. It's that vital connection. If Christ is really our head, then we, we need to be connected to him. And absolutely everything in our life should flow from that. That's why the book of James is written. The Apostle James wants us to understand what it means to be vitally connected to Christ and how we make sense of our world in light of that. There's One of my favorite Christian philosophers is a Canadian, uh, Charles Taylor, and he has a concept in this book a secular age. This whole book is written about how and why we think and and use the words we use and understand our world as it is today. And in this book, he, he uses the language of like a plausibility structure or a social imaginary, basically your interpretive framework. That everything we believe about the world is filtered through our interpretive framework. What we believe is possible and impossible is filtered, filtered through. What we're able to learn is filtered through. So our challenge is, do, do we know what our filter is? Let me give an example. He would say in the 1400s, if you were living, especially in the Western world, pretty much anywhere in the world, in the 1400s, given your social imaginary, given your interpretive framework, it would have been virtually impossible for you to believe that there was not a divine being or God over the universe. That was the culture you were in. That was exactly what you would have believed. You might not have had clarity on it, but that just would have been the water you were swimming in. Increasingly in the 21st century, because that interpretive framework has flipped, it's increasingly impossible for people to believe that, that a divine being exists. There, we are being raised in such a secularized age, such a, such a quote-unquote scientific age. So that's nonsense, right? I mean, science and scripture go hand in hand. But we're being raised in an age where increasingly we don't believe as a culture, as a society, in the divine things. Here's the challenge for us. Most people are in here this morning because we believe in Jesus, but the challenge is, is that research consistently shows that unless you know what's shaping you, unless you know why you think what you think, unless your interpretive framework is, is, is laid open to you, unless you actually understand it, you will not have the ability to learn things outside of your interpretive framework or your plausibility structure. We are all more affected by the culture and the world that we live in than we could ever possibly understand or imagine. That's why the book of James is so brilliant and so amazing. and I'm so grateful that God has preserved it for my own heart and for my church and for all of us. And we're going to dive into it today. But the key for all of it that James wants us to understand is, is the way we can see the world rightly is to humbly receive the implanted word and then to let that word shape us. And so we're going to talk about what the main idea we're going to talk about today is, is this let Jesus shape you. It's an imperative statement. We need to make sure that Jesus is shaping us, but we need to understand what that looks like. So first, we're going to talk about what it looks like to be shaped by the world. And secondly, what it means to be shaped by the word, what it means to be shaped by this implanted word, what it means to be shaped by Jesus himself. So first, shaped by the world. What does it look like? Well, there are plenty of things in the world, I should say at first here, that are beautiful and wonderful in every culture and every nation. There are great and wonderful things that God wants us to understand and appreciate and enjoy. That's not what James is talking about. James is talking about those things that are out in the world that have a negative impact on you becoming and you, uh, the, the person that God's called you to be. A negative impact on your ability to really be shaped by Jesus, to be conformed into the image of Christ. So James is laying before us these verses here, and what he wants us to do, wants, what he wants to do with us is, is help kind of deconstruct or unveil what we're, how we're viewing the world and things that are negative and that are impacting us, and then he wants to help us kind of reconstruct it and put it back together again. So let me read these passages to you again. I'm reading from a slightly different translation um, from the Christian Standard Version because it gives—it's got a couple words in here that I like um, for this particular passage. But think about this in the in the context of James through the power of the Holy Spirit, trying to help us understand things we believe about the world that are wrong and need to be corrected, things that we act out in our own lives that are wrong and need to be corrected, and then the things we need to put in their place. Think about the interpretive framework that James is giving us through these handful of verses. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Put that in the construct of the internet and social media and everything that we have in our world today in the rapid cycle. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What immediately jumps out to me about that passage is he's completely retooling the way we look at righteousness. I think the way most Western Christians look at righteousness. He's not saying it's just about your morality. He's not eliminating morality, but what's he saying? What you really believe, true righteousness, is all about how you interact with other human beings on the planet. How you treat the most vulnerable, the widow and the orphan. How you control your tongue. Are you using your tongue to build others up or to tear them down? Is your internal dialogue building yourself up or tearing yourself down? Is your internal dialogue criticizing someone else and tearing them apart? Or is it reminding you of the implanted word and who you are in Jesus? Everything in this passage is putting it into this relational context. This relational construct. If you want to know what you really believe, we really have to be honest about ourselves and say, what's the impact that I have on the people that are immediately around me? What impact do I have on my family and friends? What impact do I have on my coworkers? What impact do I have on the brothers and sisters in the church? If I want to know what I believe and what's really coming out of me, I have to look at that and I have to understand that. We are being shaped by the broken systems, the evil systems, as James and Jesus would call them, in our culture, in our world, and we need to understand that these things are actually having a massive destructive impact on us. It it, it amazes me too that 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 he concludes the passage by saying, If you're not caring for the widow and the orphan, kind of a place marker for the most vulnerable, if you don't really have a deep care and passion for them in your life, then you don't understand what it means to follow Jesus. Can we be honest about that for a minute? I wouldn't define if I was trying to think about how to really boil down Christianity and what really meant to follow Jesus. That Would that be in your top five? That be in your top ten, maybe for some of you. I mean, that's why I'm grateful for partnerships like we have with Hands at Work and, and and even in our own city that remind us that there's brokenness and vulnerability all around us. But if we turn a blind eye to that, James is telling us we don't understand Jesus. But I think my challenge is I understand that brokenness and sin and my own sin is, is, is not too helpful and it's not great, but I don't think I really fully appreciate the overwhelming, massive destructive impact that it has on my life. It made me think about this, when I was preparing for this passage, a dream I had a number of years ago. It's actually, uh, dreams are weird, right? You just, all kinds of weird patterns and things that you think about in dreams, and and which dreams you remember and why. Um, one of the most vivid dreams of my life that I remember um, very, very strongly, even to this day, um, happened right after Aiden was born, actually. Um, and so it was about 18 years ago now, or no, sorry, 17 years ago now, I do know your birthday. Um, the... Uh, but I was having this dream, and in this dream, I'm living in a two-story house, and, and I'm, I'm walking around the first story, and I see like a six-foot snake. And it's kind of like going around the downstairs area, and for some inexplicable reason, like I said, dreams are weird. I just proceeded upstairs and pretended like, you know, the snake wasn't there. didn't bother me. wasn't affecting me. Um, and, you know, live for the rest of the number of years um, with this, this snake downstairs, not caring about it because I didn't think it was impacting me at all. And then um, suddenly... I hear Aiden crying downstairs. And and I rush downstairs, and this six-foot snake had grown into like a 30-foot boa constrictor. Um, and and as, I, as I come down off the stairs, and I see Aiden, he's sitting there over in his little car seat, this like massive boa constrictor is kind of lunging right at him. And I go over there, and I dive, and try to put myself in between Aiden and this massive snake, and then I wake up like sweating and adrenaline pumping and completely terrified. And like I said, dreams are weird. But then I began to kind of calm myself down and it took me a while to go back to sleep. And I was just praying. And as I was drifting back off to sleep, I almost had this like strong sense of, of God speaking to me. And he said something to the effect of, your sin and brokenness is just like that. You think you can ignore it. You think it's not a threat. But it's going to impact everything around you. It's going to impact your family, your kids, and everything. And I've been challenged by that thought ever since that day. Do I really believe that sin and brokenness? Do I think anger is that big of a deal? Do I think impatience is that big of a deal? Do I think materialism is that big of a deal? Do I think that these things that are radically opposed to everything I know that God wants for me in Christ, do I really think they're as destructive as that? And the answer most of the time for most of us is not really. We don't really think about it. And we we don't think about it because the culture we swim in has given us interpreted framework that teaches us that it's not that big of a deal. Your sexuality, not that big of a deal. Your, your materialism, not that big of a deal. You're actually entitled to go and do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want. That's our culture and that's our day, right? It's an incredible thing to really try to unpack what we think, when the reality is, if we're being shaped by the world more than we're being shaped by the Word, then we are trapped by our desires, and our wants and our desires are being shaped by everything around us. If you don't know what's shaping your desires, it's probably something other than Jesus. There's a a Christian philosopher, literary scholar that was at Stanford for a number of years, uh, named Rene Girard, just passed away a a few years ago. And he he has a whole bunch of stuff on the nature of desire and, and why we want what we want. But he has an idea here that I think really brings a lot of clarity to what I'm trying to get at. He says this. Non-Christians imagine that to be converted, they must renounce an autonomy that all people possess naturally. A freedom and independence that Jesus would like to take away from them. In reality, once we imitate Jesus, we discover that our aspiration to autonomy has always made us bow down before individuals who may not be worse than we are, but who are nonetheless bad models Because we cannot imitate them without falling with them into the trap of rivalries in which we are ensnarled more and more. So the the argument of this passage, what James is trying to get at, is if we're looking into Jesus' face, if we're looking into the character of Jesus, if we're looking into the perfect law of freedom as he calls it, if we're imitating Christ, if we're united to Christ, that leads to freedom. If other things other than Christ, other than God's word are shaping our desires, it means that we get trapped in rivalry, that we get trapped in these cycles and we think that we're doing what we want, how we want, when we want. But the reality of it is, is, is why we want what we want is being shaped by something that's trapping us, right? If you think you have to have this kind of house in order to be happy, does that come from Jesus? If you think you need to have this kind of designer brand for this, that, or the other thing, or you can't be happy, does that come from Christ? If you think you have to have this particular car, this particular job, your kids have to go to this particular school, does that come from Christ? No, it doesn't, right? But why do we think we have to have these things to be happy? Why do we think we have to have these certain things that are constructed in our lives? Because that's the interpretive framework we're trapped under. We're being shaped by the world more than we're being shaped by the word. And I'm preaching this to myself as much as I am to you guys. Do I really understand what's shaping me? And am I aware of it enough to lay it bare before the Lord, to lay it bare before... For friends that I trust and ask them to speak into my life. Do I believe that freedom can only come from my union with Christ and my imitation of Christ? Or do I think freedom is indulging in whatever I think my desires are in that moment? And here's the trap because if I'm indulging in whatever I think I desire at that moment, I'm being trapped. I'm being pulled in to what the world tells me I need to be happy. Because we need nothing to be happy and fulfilled and free in this life other than living with God and living for God and letting him shape us. That's the way to true freedom. But we don't really believe that, at least don't believe it all the time. And we find ourselves being pulled into these things. We are always being shaped. We are always being inundated constantly. There's no point in time in any of our lives, for the most part now in today's world, where we are not being inundated with something. Either advertising, or we're on our phones, or we're watching television. There is constant input coming at us all, all times of day, um, and, and, and do we know how it's shaping us? Let me give you just one example that I was thinking about recently with respect to how I'm being shaped, how we're being shaped, and it comes from the idea of kind of social media. There was a political reporter uh, about a year ago that was talking about how our country currently works with respect to these different political cycles, and I found this kind of funny but also kind of sad. So let me read it to you. So it says, here's the social media machine that we're stuck in. Now, if you're not on social media, um, then you're probably self-righteous and looking at the rest of us that are and judging us. Um, but in all jokes, even if you're not on social media, our world's being shaped by it. Your kids, your, your neighbors, everyone are being shaped by it, especially with respect to how we look at politics in our nation and everything else. All right, so here's how this political reporter says this. Step one, Trump throws an early morning Twitter bomb, usually but not always, time to Fox and Friends fodder or reinforcement. The tweet bomb frequently hits fake news or some social topic with racial undertones. Within minutes, thousands of Trump's Twitter followers retweet it and the sparks fly in response. Step two, the outrage machine kicks in. The first hour of the cable news show Morning Joe is consumed by reaction to either that morning's text or that morning or the previous day's tweet bomb. But the real action unfolds on Twitter with scores of journalists and activists howling in protest. Step three, the cable beast awakens. MSNBC, CNN, and Fox are basically 24-7 politics now, and the reporters who uncorked on Twitter sit alongside the host to dissect and condemn the Twitter bomb. They tweet the highlights, the rage builds, the cycle speeds. Step four. The fringes foment. Breitbart belts out a stream of stories, usually supporting Trump or mocking cable hysteria on the left. It pumps its greatest hits through Facebook, where both sides gain the algorithm to play their team's emotional response. Twitter wars usually ensue. Step five. Opinions fly. By nighttime, MSNBC uh, goes hard left, Fox hard right, peaking with the highest rated champions, Maddow on the left and Hannity on the right, tucking like-minded people in with soothing stories of why were they were so right and everyone was so wrong today. Right? You think about how our culture goes, and we might not get caught into that thing, but, but so much of how our world is engaging with each other is dehumanizing the other, what they call an identity politics of the common enemy. When we know that there is no other for us, right? Every single human being is a broken image bearer. A broken image bearer that needs Jesus, but is an image bearer nonetheless, right? So entitled to dignity and to worth and to honor and to love. So there is no other I can stand in opposition to. There are only image bearers that need Jesus. I don't divide up and have this tribe over here. And this even happens within Christianity. There's something, that, a concept again on social media that, that is, is raging now. I'm sure most of you guys or some of you guys have heard of it called mobs. It's, it's this instantaneous, either on Instagram or Facebook or social media, where internet mob justice is coming around. And again, this isn't just a political issue, it's a humanity issue. It's an image-bearer of God issue. Are we entitled to speak to any human being in the way we would, we would desire to speak? No. We're required to love them in the way that Christ has loved them. We're required to be slow to speak, to be slow to anger, and to point people towards Jesus. But this internet mob justice idea is not just an American thing, it, it, you know, this idea is, is I was doing a search for this on the Internet um, and, and articles immediately popped up on a Google News search from England and India and New Zealand and Malaysia and Nigeria and South Africa. And I don't know why this you know, surprised me, but even Canada. Right. I thought Canadians are supposed to be nice. So there's a book that was written on this uh, by a guy named John Ronson, a reporter that said, so you've been publicly shamed. And there's this disturbing image that he has up there. This is the going reason I put up the cover there. But he says that Facebook is where you lie to your friends. Twitter is where you tell the truth to strangers. There's this complete and total dehumanizing that takes place via social media where we can completely, you know, this whole idea that distance demonizes, where we give ourselves the permission to denounce those that don't agree with us. And so he writes this whole book, kind of looking at this phenomenon, and what he's saying is, and this is no surprise to us, that this kind of anger, this kind of outrage, this kind of demonization is destroying society in America. And so he's looking for alternatives, and he's looked, he finds a few different examples, and he, and he ultimately says this, kindness and compassion is what works for society. If we're serious about wanting to improve the world, then what we do on Twitter doesn't work. It's a pretty logical and and, and understandable conclusion, but do you know why that works? Because every human being is an image bearer of God. Every human being is, is, is designed to live with God and live for God. Every human being is designed to live in harmony and love with every other human being. And sin and brokenness destroys that and enables us to not care about or demonize or distance ourselves from others, but it doesn't change the underlying reality of who God is. If our interpretive framework needs to be transformed in one area above any other area, it's this one I would argue. Do I believe that every single human being on the planet is an image bearer of God, entitled to dignity and to worth and to honor and to love? Or do I give myself permission to not care about certain people? Or do I give myself permission to denounce certain people? Now, we need to stand for truth and we need to communicate that, but we need to communicate it within the construct of someone being an image bearer of God entitled to dignity and to worth and to honor and to love. We are called to exist differently in this world, not because we're trying to be moral people and put on a facade, but because we understand who we are and who God has made us to be in Christ. We understand more deeply what we are to exist like because we understand who Jesus is. And the hope for the world is that believers, followers of Jesus, can unveil and unmask the broken and destructive ways that our culture is existing, and we can then begin to point people to hope that we have in Christ. James wants to give us a better understanding of what it means to be an image bearer that's been redeemed and renewed in Christ. This is radically transformative stuff here. This is a radically different and beautiful and constructive way to live. And the problem for us as believers is we get caught up in the same cycles as our non-Christian neighbors do. And we play into the same destructive patterns and we don't break free. Christ wants us to break free. Think about these words again. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word. Which is able to save your souls. There's a similar idea in Proverbs 1727 where it says, The one who is restrained has knowledge. The one who remains cool and self controlled, that is the one that understands. It's not the Christian leader that goes on Twitter denouncing everyone that disagrees with him. It's not the conference even done in the context of Christianity whose primary aim isn't to help you understand what it means to be a redeemed and renewed image-bearer, but its constant aim and, and, and main aim is, is to help you understand who among your brothers and sisters you're supposed to denounce and oppose. This characterizes the church in the West. I'm not saying that we don't have disagreements that are important. I've spent the bulk of my adult life studying doctrine. I care about doctrine. But the core idea of doctrine, if I read John 17, if I read 1 Corinthians, the core idea of doctrine is what? It's love of Jesus. It's unity with Christ. And and, and, and Paul would tell us, James would tell us, everyone would tell us, is that if someone is believing in the triune God, they believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they're calling out to Christ for their salvation, they're called a brother or a sister, hard stop. It doesn't mean we can agree with and partner with absolutely everyone out there in the wider Christian world but it does mean that we look at them as brothers and sisters in Christ and we're entitled to treat them with a a special level of love and dignity and worth and honor. This is the way we are supposed to exist in this world. And the broken ways of our world are breaking people and even the church. These are destructive systems, again, evil systems If we follow the teaching of James and Jesus. And it culminates in this, not caring for the most vulnerable in your midst. G.K. Beale, an Old Testament scholar, did a study of the book of Proverbs and extended it to the rest of the Old Testament. And he said, you could rightly summarize righteousness in the Old Testament this way. Disadvantaging yourself to advantage or benefit others. And you could rightly define or summarize wickedness as this. Disadvantaging others to benefit or advantage yourself. See, everything in scripture is put in the context of relationship. If you want to know what I truly believe about God and my relationship with him, then you need to look at how I'm treating people that are in my midst. I can't claim to love God and have received unconditional love for him and forgiveness from him without extending unconditional love and forgiveness to others. Now, we're all broken. We're all going to fail. And, and we have hope and forgiveness in Christ. Our salvation is not dependent upon what we do. It is, I'm not saying that be a better person so God will accept you. God has already accepted you because of what Christ has done for you. But, but what God does when he accepts you, what God does when he forgives your sins, what God does is draw you into his family. He adopts you as a son. He adopts you as a daughter. And then he says to you, I'm going to teach you what it means to be in my household. And the call on us then is to respond and to say, yes, Lord, I want to be more conformed into Christ's image. I want to love like he loves. I want to forgive like he forgives. That's our call. All right, secondly here, what does it look like to be shaped by the word, the implanted word of God here? Probably the key verse in all the, the book of James is one twenty two, where he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Jesus himself is called the word. We know that he spoke the whole world into existence. And so we know that when he talks about receiving this implanted word and hearing the word, he's not just talking about intellectually believing something. He's talking about your vital union with Christ himself. He is talking about the supernatural, real connection that you have with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because of the work that Christ has done. But that work is is a transformative work. He wants to bring you in and draw you into relationship. Even when he says that that pure and undefiled religion is this, he's writing to an audience originally that would have been predominantly Jewish. And for them, for many of them, their their religion had become reduced down to customs and festivals and rituals and duty rather than what it was intended to be, which was a reflection of God's main statement, which, which is, I will be your God and you will be my people. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, God wants to draw us into relationship with Him and extend His mission of love and service and salvation through us to others. God has called us to be His very presence on this earth. God has called us to live in relationship with Him and to live for Him. Now, we know that the whole history of the world is largely characterized by violence and atrocities. And so, if you think about that for a moment, there's been many really low points in the church. There's been many points in time... When the church has not done what it's called to do, and so we can talk about that honestly, and I'll do that in a few minutes here. But what we're called to do is to understand God's call in our life, and to ask ourselves the question: Is Jesus really shaping me? Am I being shaped by the Word of God? Is what I read in James 1, 19 and twenty seven is that what I'm? It, does it characterize me? Am I even striving after it? Is it part of my interpretive framework? Do I think being slow to speak and slow to anger? Do I think caring for the widow and the orphan, the vulnerable in my midst? Do I think controlling my tongue is 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 directly and and in a way I cannot possibly separate connected to my identity in Christ? Because James says it is. Jesus says it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And do what next? Love your neighbor as yourself. Greatest commandments, right? He connects our treatment of those that are around us, our love and compassion and service to them, to our identity in him. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were to reduce it down, and if someone said, what's the core of Christianity all about? Most of us would get the message of salvation right. The good news is the the gospel proclamation that Jesus Christ laid his life down for you to draw you in relationship with his father. You know, we, we get that part, right? But will we stop there? How much of your view of Christianity, my view of Christianity, extends beyond my personal salvation and my personal moral reformation in my life? How much of it do I think has to impact the way I view every other human being on the planet? The way I view politics, the way I view my community, the way I view culture, the way I view everything. How much am I willing to look into the law of freedom, to look into Jesus and and look and understand who I am? You see, God wants to reveal our sin and our brokenness, not to put it in our face or condemn us or make us feel bad about ourselves, but to show us the parts of ourselves that are not yet conformed to him so we can grow and so we can change. And so there's this powerful illustration here, right, of of a mirror. Can you imagine this? So you look at yourself in a mirror. What do we know about looking at ourselves in a mirror? If you look at yourself in a mirror and your hair is messed up, what do you do? You fix it, right? Some of you a lot more than others. How many of us, you're walking past, you're in a hotel lobby or in a business or whatever else, and you see an image of yourself in a mirror and you don't even look? Most of us don't, right? You want to see if you look okay, so you're just kind of there. Most of us begin the day by looking in a mirror. Why? Because you want to see if you appear properly. If you look in the mirror in the morning and you've got a whole bunch of dirt smudge on your face, do you just walk away and forget the dirt's there? No, you use the mirror to fix it. You use the mirror to respond to it. Use the mirror to fix your hair. Use the mirror to shave. Use the mirror to put your makeup on. You use the mirror because you see that in the mirror is an accurate reflection of what about your life and appearance needs to change in that moment. And so James extends that to Scripture, to what we know and see about Jesus. And so when I pull the mirror of God's implanted Word up alongside myself, and I see and I look in it, and I see, you know what? I'm not loving and caring for my neighbor. I'm not being patient with my spouse or with my kids. I'm not being kind and loving. And, and he's saying that I take that then, and through the power of the Holy Spirit and the finished work of Christ, I endeavor to allow God to shape that in my life, to respond to the implanted word, which can conform me more and more to Christ's image. But if I don't do that, if I read God's word and I see Jesus is really kind and loving, Jesus is amazing, I should be more like Jesus. And then I walk away and don't care. Then I'm just like someone that looked at themselves in the mirror and their hair's all messed up and they got dirt smudge all over their face and they go out into the world as though none of that's true. See, it's not about moralism. It's not about just putting on a surficial kind of thing. It's about recognizing the incredible supernatural transformation that took place in your life when God adopted you and brought you into his family on the basis of Jesus. Jesus laid his life down for you and then adopted you. And the Holy Spirit mysteriously and wonderfully has come to indwell you. But not for no purpose. And not just to be a get out of hell free card when you die one day. God did it to transform you today. God did it to enable you to be transformed more and more in the image of Christ. And so we're called to hear and do, to exercise self-control, to care for the needy, to be the presence of Jesus in our world. As the Father sent him, so he has now sent us. And the way we use our words is an index is to how we view Jesus. And we really should be, among all people, the people that the world often neglects, should be at the very top of our agenda, shouldn't they? If we don't care about those in need, what does James tell us? Our religion, our following of Christ is worthless. It's an incredible thing he's laying out before us. Again, is that what you would boil down to? I I would, if someone asked me how to boil down Christianity, because I'm a good Western man, it would be something almost entirely intellectual about what you have to believe. Because I've been taught by my culture to separate what I believe from what I actually do. And James wants me to understand that that, that believing in Christ is walking with Christ in this life. That believing in Christ is praying for and receiving the transformation that he would have each and every one of us receive. That is what he is doing in our midst. That's what it means to know the word and let the word transform you. Greg Gilbert in his commentary in the book of James describes this part of it this way. One of God's most celebrated characteristics in the Old Testament is his particular concern for those who are most helpless. Moreover, because he shows that kind of concern, he expects his people to do the same. In Deuteronomy 10, 18 and 19, Moses says he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And that description of God is followed immediately by this command. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. The point is simple but crucial. The people of God should be like God. Gosh, that's uncomfortable, isn't it? Now, the weight of it, we're not supposed to feel on our own. The weight of it, we feel and go straight to God and say, I can't do this without you. And God says, yeah, I know. That's why I sent my Holy Spirit to indwell you. And why your salvation doesn't depend on you, it depends on Jesus. He's laid his life down for you, and now he's going to teach you to lay your life down for others. Your salvation's secure, so he's freeing you up to love and serve him. He's freeing you up from not thinking you have to live your life going after this desire and that desire and trying to fulfill your resume and your housing and your cars and your bank accounts and your retirement accounts and your vacation and all those things that our culture tells us are essential to life. Because none of them are. It all comes back to how we view Christ and how we view others. In 2 Corinthians 5, when the Apostle Paul is trying to help his people um, in Corinth understand how they're called to live, he has an incredible progression there. And I won't put it up. I'll just ta- kind of talk you through it. He says, basically, each of us used to view Christ in a worldly way. And what he means by that is we didn't understand who he really was. We didn't understand that this was the second person in the Trinity. We didn't understand that this was God made man, that this was the incarnate God on earth. And so because we didn't understand who Christ was, we dismissed him and we disregarded him. But... We've been transformed and we now view Christ for who he is. And now that we understand who Christ is, what does he say next? Then therefore, we will never look at any other human being in a worldly way. That we will look at every other human being as an image bearer of God entitled dignity and the worth and the honor and love. And then we will recognize that we have been made ministers of reconciliation that God has given us a responsibility on this earth to help other people understand who He is, to reconcile people to God, and to reconcile people to each other. We are supposed to be the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers is what Jesus taught us, right? That is supposed to be the very core nature of us. It's not something we try to put on and become. What God's trying to teach us is that this way of existing in the world, of being slow to anger and slow to speak and working for peace and love and caring for the vulnerable and being a minister of reconciliation is part of your very identity because of who Christ is and what he's done. And when we really view the world this way, it can have a massively transformative impact. And I'm not just talking about being more polite to your neighbor. In fact, this idea of being a minister of reconciliation, this idea of every human being being created in the image of God and being in fact of the dignity and to worth and to honor and to love is the very core theological principle that saved South Africa from descending into what probably would have been one of the most bloody civil wars of the 20th century. Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela stood up on this principle and said that there there is no future Desmond Tutu wrote a whole book called there is no future without forgiveness and in in the, in the in that book he describes how they went through the truth and reconciliation commission and he's given the responsibility by Mandela of leading this and and he's he's speaking i don't get, I won't get his words as beautiful as his were but on the first day of this of this truth and reconciliation commission he stands up and he's leading about 18 people that are a cross section of all of south african society And he says, I've given a lot of thought into how I'm supposed to lead this group. And he says, I think the worst thing we could do is come here and pretend to be neutral because we're not. The best thing we can do is come here and be who we are and have the humility to learn from each other and to work together. And then just maybe we can lead South Africa forward um, in unity. And he says, what you must know about me is is I'm a Christian and I'm a theologian. And I'm not telling you that, he says, because I'm going to jam my theology and my Christianity down your throats. But you need to understand that the words that are coming out of my mouth are entirely founded upon what I believe about God and Christ and this world as a result. And so he says, I have two abiding hopes for this commission. And they're based on my theology. I believe that every single human being is an image bearer of God entitled to dignity and to worth and to honor and to love. And so when we investigate these crimes of apartheid, we must be thoroughly honest a majority of our population, because of the arbitrary category of the color of their skin, has been oppressed and brutalized for the better part of a century. And so to not thoroughly investigate these crimes would be to, to, to cast more oppression and more suffering upon people that have suffered already too much. But he says, mind you, I believe every human being is an image bearer of God. And so even the, the, worst, or the perpetrators of the worst evils of apartheid are not themselves the face of evil. They are broken image bearers capable of repentance and change and we must call them to it. Isn't that powerful? Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu had suffered more than almost anyone in South Africa stood up to be the voice of forgiveness and, and, and Tutu's second key idea was the title of his book, There is No Future Without Forgiveness because that's how God's made us to be. This is what he says in, the, in that book. For us who are Christians... The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof positive that love is stronger than hate, that life is stronger than death, that light is stronger than darkness, that laughter and joy and compassion and gentleness and truth. All these are so much stronger than their ghastly counterparts to oppose injustice and oppression is not something that is merely political. No, it is profoundly religious. Can you imagine what the gospel means to people whose dignity is trodden underfoot every day of their lives to those who have had their noses rubbed in the dust as if they didn't count? Can you think of anything more subversive of a situation of injustice and oppression? Why should you need Marxist ideology or whatever? The Bible is dynamite in such a situation. In South Africa, when they banned books, we told the government the book they should have banned long ago was the Bible. For nothing could be more radical, more revolutionary, as we faced up to the awfulness of injustice, oppression, and racism. I mean, that ideology transformed the whole society. In South Africa still got plenty of issues, but I mean, th- to see what happened there, to see what happened in places like Northern Ireland with the same kind of thing, and then to have an imagination of what might be possible for us, even in our small churches in the Bay Area at this time, if we really started living differently and loving and serving and viewing everyone as those that we are called to love and serve in the name of Christ. There are so many other ways to look at this, but you think about this in, in, in the way I've heard it described. Um, in the incarnation, Jesus became vulnerable for the vulnerable. Jesus wasn't born into a wealthy household. He was born into a poor household. We know that. But what's the significance of that? Because God's heart is for the widow and the orphan. George Sneeman, who you guys all know, is our main partner in Hands at Work. And I've heard George say this in all kinds of different gatherings. And he'll say this. He'll say, look, I'm not here to tell you that the widows and orphans need you. I'm here to tell you that you need them. Why? Because we need to understand the heart of our Father if we are to look into the word if we are looking in that mirror and be transformed, we need to understand that every single human being, no matter how vulnerable, no matter how oppressed, no matter how different than us, is an image bearer of God, entitled to dignity and to worth and to honor and to love. We must be shaped by the Word and not the world. And the Word tells us to take actions, and our actions need to be shaped by the Word. And what do they look like? They look like loving and serving your neighbor. Right? Isn't that amazing? That's so simplistic. But how transformative. If you loved your neighbor as you love yourself. If you forgave as Jesus forgives. If you loved as Jesus loved. These are transformative, amazing and powerful things. And this is not like a moralistic burden I'm throwing on all your shoulders. This is again an identity thing. It's not a morality thing. It's a do we really get who we are in Christ? Do we understand the power of the Holy Spirit? Do I understand that God has given me the power to be slow to speak? To be slow to anger? Do I understand that God has given me the power to put on and to bear forth all the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, uh, patience, peace, kindness, all those things are part of your core identity because of who He's made you to be in Jesus. Can you imagine how much fuller your life would be if you were freed up by these things to live and to be the man or woman of God He's created you to be? Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for all the truth that You have communicated to us in the book of James. We thank You for the power of Jesus We thank you for the power of prayer. We thank you for the power you have given us because our identities are in Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to love and serve others as you have loved and served us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.